0: Mr. Marlin, Jeff Conine joins me this time on the Locked on Marlins podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. First and foremost, talk to you a little bit about it off the air, but tell everybody, how's the family doing? How are you hanging in there during this crazy time?
1: Well, it is definitely a crazy time and um, we're all doing great. We're all doing great. Um, You know, uh, we have eight people here quarantined in the house and um, days have actually gone by fairly quickly. And you know, thank goodness we have some gym equipment that we can work out with and, um, you know, some space uh, that we can roam around. So it's it's been, um, thankfully,
0: quite comfortable. And Griffin, obviously, your son, is was ready, geared up for a big professional season now, probably going into the Florida State League after having a great year. You guys have been kind of forced to train, like you said, at the weight room at your house. And now you built a batting cage in the backyard. How has that been working with him now? It's pretty much just you two because he can't go to the training facilities, obviously. It's a problem everybody has, but he's fortunate at least where he can work with you, a former big leaguer, and at least he can get some training in, but it's really every man for himself right now.
1: Yeah, he had a buddy uh, come back with him from spring training uh, because his grandmother was living with them and uh, uncertainty uh, with that. So he stayed with us for a few weeks. Um, They got some good work in before they shut down the parks and everything like that. And then after he left, it's like, you know, what are you going to do? We got like a little wiffle ball machine that uh, Griff was hitting out on the golf course, uh, trying to just get some hand-eye coordination and swings in. And, um, you know, we had a spot in the backyard where I thought, you know what, I'm going to try to construct a a bit of a cage. It's only about 30 feet long. And um, it actually worked out as planned, which is shocking. You know, I had a vision and it uh, pretty much came to fruition and it worked pretty well. So.
0: That doesn't always happen when you're trying to build something like that. So I had no nice. idea what I was
1: doing, and you know, I think, oh, this is going to work, and it actually did. So we were we were happy with the result.
0: <laughs> well, there you go. And and this was going to be a, a cool opportunity for your family because you're located in South Florida, have been for a long time, and Griffin would have been playing in the Florida State League this year. Uh, hopefully, the season will get started pretty soon. For my sake too, I was going to be broadcasting games in Jupiter, and I was looking forward to that, but how excited were you to be able to go to Griffin's games? Of course, some of them are a little bit further, but most of the Florida state league games are within a couple hours or even within less than that, an hour or so from you guys, where you're located now. Yeah, it was uh, going to be a very exciting year
1: for us uh, to be able to see him. Cause last year uh, he was in Lansing, Michigan. Um, the year before that he started off in Vancouver, uh, British Columbia. So we had some lengthy trips to go uh, be able to see him play. So we were very excited to come. Uh, this year, like Jupiter's an hour and 10 minutes from us. And uh, the home field over in Dunedin is about three and a half. So all within uh, a drive, which would have been really nice. And it's has been unfortunate that that's not coming. Uh, well, hopefully they're going to be something, but uh, that's going to
0: be a wait and see. So before I get into your career, I want to ask you one last question in regards to that. What's it like watching your son now? You know what it was like going through the minor leagues, uh, slightly different scenarios where Griffin was – drafted a little bit earlier and uh, had a little bit more of that like hype and and notoriety going in. But at the end of the day, you got to produce through the minor leagues. And it's the same climb for the guy drafted in the 50th round or the second round. How how has it been watching Griffin now go through those same steps that you did? You don't want to be too overbearing and put too much pressure on him, but you also want to help and make sure he goes about it the right way. Is it more nerve wracking for you watching your son playing now going through those moments? Or uh, is it, is it kind of different?
1: Arm, you don't have to sugarcoat it. Uh, he beat me in the draft by 56 rounds. And
0: uh, <laughs> I had absolutely
1: no hype or anything going into it. But uh, it's true what you say. You know, it doesn't matter the round. Once you get wherever you're going, you've got to perform. And it's much more nerve-wracking for me watching him play than, than when I played. You know, I, I know what he's going through. I know what the minor leagues is all about. Uh, I know what slumps feel like. Um, I know what streaks feel like. And, you know, I I don't ever want to be the overbearing um, father that wants to be throwing advice every second of every game because I know that you got to work it out yourself. You got to learn how to kind of make your own plan and settle into your own routine. Um, You know, I will offer things here, there, and I always ask before I do because I don't want to be... Um, that guy that's like, hey, you got to do this, you got to do that, you know, and we have some good discussions about hitting. And that's all I think, uh, or most important part right now for him is obviously physical tools are off the charts. He's uh, in a way better spot than I ever was at that age. But the the mental game is what now going to take over. And that's what's going to determine how far he gets.
0: And that's the the funny thing when you think about it, right? You talk about how you were drafted 56 rounds after he was, but you beat out probably in terms of career, just the amount of games you played, the numbers you put up. Um, probably almost every single, I, I had to have to look at the draft, but every second round pick from your draft, a good majority of them, I'm sure you had more longevity and a, and a better career then. So it just shows how much the mental aspect and how much you just have to put dues in in the minor leagues. And at the end of the day, everyone's on an even playing field when you get to that part of the ball game and professional baseball. So talking about now with your beginning of your career, last time I had you on the show was probably about a year ago. And it was before I was with locked on. It was over with fish stripes. We talked a lot about what you did at UCLA, how you were a relief pitcher. You didn't really hit. And then all of a sudden you get an opportunity and you end up getting drafted really late and get a chance to start really figuring out how to hit because you felt like you had the tools and your coaches believed in you. How did that work out now where you started to really hit your stride about a year and a half into the minor leagues? What really clicked for you? You talk about the mental side, but for you, it was something that you didn't have as much experience at the plate, right? You you didn't have the college at-bats. You didn't have any professional at-bats. What really just clicked for you in professional ball where things just started to come together?
1: Well, it was a process. Um, you know, there was a couple bad things and a couple of good things without taking any college of bats is that I didn't really have a set style going into professional baseball. So I wasn't like I had to unlearn any bad habits. Uh, I was pretty coachable at that point. Um, So that was a positive. Um, And the negative is I didn't have any experience. So I didn't know what to expect. Um, Obviously, when I first went into pro ball, (laughs) I was completely overmatched. Um, You know, I had I didn't really hit much my sophomore year of high school. I was more, uh, primarily a pitcher. Um, I was injured most of my junior year of high school. I hit like 260 in, in high school. And then I had a really good senior year. I made like second team all CIF in California. And that um, kind of was my only real big offensive year as far as uh, baseball is concerned in high school. So I didn't have really many, um, much foundation to go off of. And it was a struggle at the beginning. It was a big struggle.
0: Um, But I had
1: some great coaches um, at the early levels that um, were harsh at times, which was good for me because I could handle it, gives you a little bit of thick skin. But, you know, in the minor leagues, you're always worried about, or a lot of guys are worried about, what the person in front of you is doing. And, oh, my gosh, I'm struggling right now, but the guy ahead of me is hitting 300, and he's got this many home runs, and I need to do this to get ahead of that guy. And they basically just, you know, not – literally, but figuratively slapped me in the face saying, hey, you can't worry about anybody ahead of you. All you can worry about is what you're doing and what you're doing right now. And I think that's what, when I finally realized that, um, I concentrated on improving my game, not worrying about everybody else's game, is when I started working even harder. I was always a hard worker, but I started working even harder on the mental aspect, especially. And double uh, A is really where I, in the corner and I had gained a lot of confidence and I had a great year.
0: You talk about guys in front of you, a little bit of the case in Kansas City. You have the opportunity to be selected in the expansion draft by the Marlins. What was that process like? Were you, did you have any idea that you could be selected in the expansion draft? I know certain players get protected. I don't know how it was then though, in terms of like what you knew, because you couldn't just check Twitter with players now finding things out before they even get notified by the team it's a little bit different then and were you hoping almost for an opportunity to go somewhere where you could play right away like an expansion team like the Florida Marlins and really show what you're able to do
1: yeah back then the first round you could protect 15 uh, players on your 40-man roster and from what I had heard uh you know through organizational talk was that I was going to be protected for the first round so um, I got a phone call I think the night before saying uh, you're not protected Um, the first round they they did not have a starting shortstop at the time so one of my roommates at the time David Howard uh, was basically the only shortstop they had in the organization so they protected David Howard instead of me Um, and they were going to then you expand to 18 players I think in the second round and 21 players in the third round and from what I had heard they were going to protect me after the first round so um, I had gotten a call saying that I wasn't protected and we started watching the draft and um, in the minor leagues, I absolutely loved playing Colorado because Mile High Stadium back then was a hitter's paradise. And uh, I loved Denver. And so I was really kind of hoping to to be selected by the Rockies. But early on, they, uh, they picked uh, Andres Galarraga. So I knew that was probably not going to be an option for me. Um, but when, you know, the 11th pick, um, Dave Dombrowski goes to the podium and says from the Kansas City Royals, I just had a feeling he's going to say my name. And sure enough, he said my name, and uh, you know I couldn't have asked for a better scenario. Like you said, we had Wally Joyner in Kansas City at the time at first base. Uh, I would have been struggling for playing time there. And while going to a new organization from the ground floor, I knew it might be a little chaotic. I knew that I had a great shot to be starting in the big leagues, and that was my opportunity to, to uh, take a hold of it.
0: So you obviously get that opportunity. You have a great rookie season. And you're geared up, right, for the next season, 1994. you got a good spot on the team. You're ready for uh, to continue and just build off of that year. You're off to probably the best start. I wouldn't even say start. It's almost two-thirds of the way through the season. And then, of course, the strike happens. You're hitting three, nineteen, eighteen 18 home runs, 82 runs batted in. You said off the year before that that definitely was your best season. Obviously, it was cut short. What was that like for you? You are on fire, you're having one of the best years, if not the best year, of your career, even though it was a young career. But to any scale, that was a phenomenal season, and you have it cut short. How did you deal with that, and what were the emotions in something like that?
1: Well, you know obviously selfishly you're thinking we can't go on strike because uh like I was having a great year, and <clears throat> you know that's how you build your career, especially early on as you have great years and and um try to build something in the, a long lasting, fruitful career. And that, that year I was, like you said, I was having a great year. Um, and on the flip side, you know, you talk to the veterans that have been around for a long time and, um, the struggles that they did getting to where we were at that time, as far as contracts were concerned and privileges, uh, as far as travel and, and things like that. And you realize that, you know, the game is bigger than you. And, the leadership at that time with Donald Fear and uh, Gene Orza and the rest of the staff at the MLBPA was uh, pretty impressive. And um, although it was disheartening to end the season, uh, we all felt that it was for the right reasons. And, uh, you know, we we I think we played 112 games that that year. Uh, the Montreal Expos um, as a team was having one of the greatest years in baseball history. Those guys were absolutely phenomenal running away with the uh, first place and they got cheated out of uh, probably a world series berth. So when the, when you look when you look at the whole picture, it was um it was worth it uh, individually. You know, I was I was disappointed that I couldn't finish that out.
0: Yeah, you really feel for the Expos in that season. You really wonder what the domino effect could have been with franchise being removed. 72 and 40, the on paper that team was unbelievable with a young Larry Walker, Moises Alou, so many good young players. So you weren't the only victim of that circumstance, but of course like you say selfishly you'd love to keep it running especially in a sport like baseball where it's just so hard to have continued success like that. But baseball comes back a couple years later. The the Marlins end up going to the postseason in 1997. But before I talk about that, th- this whole kind of idea of cutting the season short reminds me of what's going on now just on the other side of things, right? We're going to start late this year, hopefully start late this year what are your thoughts on how that's going to work with the season do you think this is a good time to experiment maybe try some things that were talked about before or do you just try and jump right into it and try and play a shortened season it's not really something we've seen before
1: yeah this is unprecedented obviously Um, in 95 when we came back uh, we didn't get a deal done until very late Uh, we started the season late we only played 144 games that year Uh, And I think we had about three and a half weeks of spring training. That was our entire spring training, which for a position player, I thought was perfect. Um, You know, that's about all I needed to get ready. Uh, I was ready to go at the beginning of the season. Pitchers obviously need a little bit more time than that to build up arm strength. But um, what we're seeing now is, is pretty much unprecedented. But unfortunately, with not many baseball players being able to take reps, you have to have live action before you can just jump into anything. And I don't know how long that's going to take after this big of a layoff. Um, You know, in 95, when we started late, I was still able to go to the cages. I was still able to throw. I could take ground balls. I could do all that stuff where the guys don't have the opportunity to do that now. So um, it's going to be interesting to see what Major League Baseball decides as far as a length of time when the restrictions are lifted and the time frame they come up uh, to prepare for games. Because you don't want to do a makeshift uh, no workout and just get into games because that's going to, you're going to injure guys and, and that's going to be terrible for the sport. So um, hopefully, you know, things continue to trend downward and um, the safety of everyone concerned is, is paramount, but you know, you hope that, that we can salvage something and have some baseball
0: this year. And you mentioned when you were waiting for the expansion draft you were leaning towards Colorado because of how the ball flies out there and you obviously end up going to the Marlins where it's a football stadium pretty weird funky dimensions uh, I would say for the most part probably a pitcher's park but the way it was that uh, like laid out that down the left field line was was not really much of a poke it was only 3 15 330 with a low wall but then the wall goes up it was just weird dimensions Definitely not ideal for a right-handed hitter if you're trying to to hit a lot of home runs, but you were able to put up good numbers there. And then going into 97, that's when the team starts to generate some more fans, get a little bit more attention, and they invest in the team. What was it like, though, going from just a baseball stadium, expecting to go into a, like a baseball realm like Kansas City or, or even the Rockies in Mile High, and you end up going to this brand new team called the Florida Marlins with a football stadium?
1: Yeah, we called it the um, the name tag spring training because we were basically cast-offs from every other organization. And while I knew a few guys that I'd played through with in the minor leagues, you know, it's pretty much a bunch of new faces uh, as a rookie. Um, and, you know, we got to Vieira, and uh, the main stadium wasn't ready yet, so we had to play uh, the first games in Coco Expo, uh, old stadium I think the Houston Astros used way back in the day. And then you get down to... Joe Robbie Stadium and you know it's a football stadium but I thought you know they did a pretty good job of uh making it look uh true to baseball and you know with the big wall out there and you know what I was in the big leagues I didn't really care <laughs> what my field looked like I knew I had made it and I was there and I was excited to play there and um you know the buzz uh that South Florida generated you know we had the the pre Uh, season caravan you know during spring training and we go to the Daytona mall and we'd have a three-hour line for autographs and the buzz down here was just uh, tremendous and you know I don't think many people remember but we drew over three million fans that first year
0: yeah that well that's amazing and then things tapered off a little bit then 97 the Marlins ponied up a little bit they had the seventh highest payroll in the league. Only other only one other time did the Marlins have a payroll that high, and it was in 2012 when they moved into their new stadium. And we remember the the big expectations for that team and ultimately the disappointment. But with your team in 97, that was where the Marlins really ponied up. Do you think that there was a little bit more pressure now on that season where they started to invest in players a little bit more? Now you've been around for four years. And teams are, or people are expecting you guys to be good that year, came through with the World Series. Was there a little bit more pressure compared to 2003? I'm assuming the answer is yes. But just in general, how was that season going into it? Um,
1: <clears throat> there was pressure, but not on us as players. You know, there was pressure for this organization because Wayne Huizinga at the time had said, you know what, uh, the, the strike badly damaged the. Attendance here at South Florida that like I said, we drew over 3 million that first year. we on strike the second year. I think we were on pace to draw over 3 million again the second year. Went on strike and the South Florida fans just turned their back on baseball. So 95 attendance, 96 attendance was not good at all. Wayne Heisinga said, you know what? Uh, even though baseball starting to come back a little bit as far as fan base is concerned across the country. Uh, he told Dave Dombrowski, do whatever you can to build a winning team. I want you to go out and get whatever you need. Uh, I will open the pocketbook and we're going to see if baseball will come back as far as the fan base is concerned here in South Florida. So he did. And when we got to spring training that year, um, there was no pressure on us. We knew we had a good team. We knew we were good. So when we got in that clubhouse and as we went through spring training, uh, it was evident. I I think our spring training record was something absurd like 26 and five or, uh, you know, 24 and six or we were we were dominant and we knew it we were confident so we knew going to season we had something special so we weren't uh there's no pressure on us at all we didn't feel it we just
0: were excited and confident to go into that season what was it like that first postseason game where you have that football stadium just fully packed for a baseball game you really just I don't even think there will ever be something like that again except maybe in Oakland if they are able to make a run before they get a new stadium where you can have sixty, seventy thousand 70,000 fans at a baseball game just all the way around the bowl from the top to bottom. Was that just the most surreal thing you've ever been in with a baseball environment? How did that compare to some other stadiums that maybe don't fit as many, but the fans are more on top of the field?
1: Well, um, you probably don't remember because you were like not born yet, but the first uh, game that we played in the playoffs that year, they did not sell it out. So they had tarps in the, in the upper deck, they had tarps that covered all the seats in the the upper decks, just to kind of make it look more cozy, I guess. And I was running out to left field to play, and I think for batting practice actually, and I looked up and they had added an extra tarp to the left field corner. So that meant they didn't sell out what a normal sellout would be for the season, which I could not believe. Um, Obviously, as the playoffs progressed, Um, I think against Atlanta, we probably had 55,000. And then, of course, against Cleveland, we sold out the whole thing with 68,000. And the, you know, the uh, atmosphere for an event like that in South Florida is is pretty much top of of the rung. I mean, you can't really get much more excitement than an event like that down here because people, they love to show up for big events. And that was the biggest one they'd seen here in quite some time, maybe
0: ever. yeah, I mean that you said I wasn't—I was hardly alive. I would do anything to be able to go back and uh, just see one of those games because every time I watch them on TV, uh, the reruns, everything like that, it just seems like the most surreal environment uh, with all the flashes, everything. It just seems incredible. With that team, there's always seems to be that one player on every team that just the game comes so easy to them, and you just marvel at what what they can do, especially on a team that w- wins a World Series. Who was that guy on the 97 team that you would just watch and be like, how does it come so easy to you?
1: Um, I would say Moises Alou probably had one of the best all round seasons um, that year. Gary Sheffield, uh, the year before, 1996, had one of the best seasons I'd ever seen by a right-handed hitter. I think he had 42 home runs, uh, 120-some RBIs, He only struck out 65 times for a violent swing like that and had 130-some walks. I hit behind him, and I I saw – I marveled at it the entire year. Uh, He struggled a little bit in 97, um, but luckily we had the horses around him to pick him up. But uh, Moises that year for us, I thought, was our
0: MVP, and uh, he just had a remarkable season. You go back to the postseason in 2003 and win the World Series. How did those two, before I go into in-depth into 2003, on the surface, how did those two compare to each other? Obviously, 2003 was a much more improbable run, uh, slow start to the season. Nobody thought you guys would do it. But once you got to the postseason, you've talked about it in the past where you guys had this confidence in 3 too, where it was like we have nothing to lose. We're on a roll. Did you have that same level of confidence almost in both World Series but from a different place?
1: Yeah, it was a little bit different. You know, 97, we knew that that team was built to do what it did. Um, So it wasn't a surprise to us that we were in the playoffs and making a run at the World Series where 2003, you know, they had to come from a huge deficit. I didn't get there until September 1st, um, obviously, but the last month of that season, the character of that team was more just like a, a childhood uh game to everyone it was just fun you know everybody had a great time every night and we never thought we were out of any game and I've always said even though I was only there for the last month it was the most fun I've ever had on a baseball field because the cast of guys that we had the support cast uh the bench guys everybody was in it and knew their role and knew how to support everybody else on the team and you know you look at uh, Miguel Cabrera coming in late uh, as a rookie, Dontre Willis. Uh, dominating as a rookie, um, and their personalities just lent to this jovial atmosphere that uh, I had never been a part of. Uh, that
0: was a magical year,
1: and I'd only been a part of it once, and we uh, never thought we were out of a game, which was awesome.
0: We talked about Miguel Cabrera coming in 2003 and making an impact. In 97, Edgar Renteria was just a young kid who comes in and obviously makes a massive impact. What was it like For him coming up, how much do you think he impacted that team as just a 20-year-old as well?
1: Well, you look at what he did. uh, He's in arguably the most important position on the entire field at shortstop. Uh, Colombian kid, doesn't speak much English, uh, coming into an American game with a high dollar payroll. And uh, it's just uh, when you look at all those factors, it's remarkable the season he turned in and the clutch hits that he had throughout the year. and the the amazing defense that he played. So um, equally as impressive um, is what he did at that age for us in 97 as what Miguel did for
0: us in 2003. In between 97 and 03, you have a couple stops in between. You're coming from Baltimore to the Marlins, as you mentioned, in the second half of the season right around the deadline. You told the story last time I had you on, and just quickly, because I don't think people realize – I mean, people know how much of an impact you made in that 2003 run, but I don't think people realize how to the wire it was for you to even be on this Marlins team in that 2003 run. It was a last-minute move and pretty crazy on how you were finally able to get to the Marlins and have that all work out. Can you tell that story real quick?
1: Yeah, it was uh, August 31st. Um, I'm in Seattle uh, playing the Mariners, just finished up the series there, and I'm struggling bad. I uh, end up, uh, I don't know, the two double plays that game or something like that, on the bus, go to the airport, and they have, like, the TSA check uh, right as, at a table in front of the stairwell going up to the plane on the tarmac. So I usually hung out in the back of the bus and waited for the crowd to die before I got off. I'm kind of back there by myself. But I see the GM the time I get off, bus, which for does. And there are a couple guys in the very front, and he walked past them And I knew he was coming to talk to me about something because he's never on our bus. So he looks at me and he sits down. He goes, well, he goes, I've got a proposed trade between us and the Florida Marlins to bring you back to Florida. And I just couldn't believe what he was saying. I'm like, wait, what? And he's like, but it's contingent. I had one year left in Baltimore. It's contingent of me breaking that one year up into two years uh, at a reduced rate. So we had some negotiating to do. And there was no internet back then. Um, we had a, uh, basically airphones in the back of the seats on the plane. And that's how I was going to make my communication because we're going to be in the air when the trade deadline passed. And I couldn't get a hold of my agent. He was in the air as well. I called my wife, Cindy, and said, Hey, this is the deal. She couldn't believe it, but I'm like, Be on standby because I'm going to be calling you. You're going to have to be the point person. You got to call Michael, my agent, and, and tell him what the situation is. And he's got to call Larry Beinfest, the GM of the Marlins at the time. And we got to get this thing worked out by it was back then. It was uh, midnight. So uh, sure enough, I get on the air. I don't, I don't even think I ever saw that bill. I don't even know what that bill was in like a credit card, but it was probably uh, massive. I called, you know, in probably a half hour increments to see what the uh, negotiation process was going like. And then I was uh, conversing with all my teammates on on the plane at the time and. Uh, sure enough, with about two minutes to go, I'm talking to Larry Beinfest, and he's like, "Jeff, he goes, I got to let the commission know right now. Do we have a deal or not?" And I said, "Yeah, we have a deal." So you know, he didn't say anything; he just hung up because he had to get it in before midnight. So I got back to Baltimore, I got you know, my stuff, I got on a plane that next morning, and it was September first game, and um, on Labor Day, had to uh, I come back, and I got my locker ready, and kind of said hello to all the new teammates, got out there and played my first game.